Talking sports as they report Back and forth from their home court They talk the sports if you're not sure They talk of sports and then talk more About all sports East, West, South, North Ryan talks sports Andrew retorts And Torch will hear as they both sort Through all the sports they both support The Walk-Ons What's up guys? Welcome to the Walk-Ons Podcast This is Ryan Reeves It is Wednesday, September 8th, 2021 We've got an awesome show for you guys course we've got week one of the nfl kicking off tomorrow which i cannot wait for we're going to do some wrap-up of college football week one a little look ahead to week two we've also got an awesome guest this week former 2008 masters champion famous for beating tiger woods it was a great Masters. we've got trevor immelman joining us here in a few minutes but andrew i don't know what it is about the south africans and the aussies that of course immelman from south africa originally i mean something about the vibe the voice the accent i could just have him on every single week and just let him go for an hour yeah it's great i wonder what they think about american accents though <laughs> i wonder if they're like oh yeah those, those texas accents they lull me to sleep you know what i mean i don't know if i've ever heard anybody who's not from america say that about american accents. i know our accents have to be of the most obnoxious loud i'm sure like other countries said american accents is like their alarm clocks <laughs> you up out of bed immediately yeah like, just, oh god is this someone yeah Starting your day immediately just upset. I also want to make sure we, we give a shout out to Trevor Immelman's uh, Instagram and Twitter. Follow him at Trevor Immelman. That's the same across the board. So Twitter and Instagram, check him out. He's got some really good content. But Andrew, let's move into the big sort of stories of the day or the big content of the day here for this show. I want to look back to week one, college football. It was awesome. Some great, great games, some interesting upsets. Uh, both of our teams, North Carolina, Wisconsin, both crapped the bed. Uh, scored 10 points each. I mean, just a quick breakdown of some of the scores. You know, Ohio State, C.J. Stroud, that, that uh, touted freshman, four touchdowns, 294 yards. Of course, Virginia Tech getting over UNC, 17-10. Penn State, 16-10 over Wisconsin. But let's start with one of the things that made us laugh last week. We were looking at the top 10 odds for the national championship, and we saw Miami there in the top 10. Uh, I don't think they're going to be there anymore after a trouncing 44-13 to to Alabama. BU is not that. No, it was like saying, oh, I'm going to go to a Fast and Furious movie and expect to see cars. We were like, we're going to see Florida, Alabama and expect to see an absolute whooping. I mean, it was, it was, I didn't even bother to like turn the game on. I'm like, why? This is going to be exactly what it ended up being. And we're in for another year of Bryce Young potentially being the next starting Alabama quarterback in a couple of years in the NFL. So, yeah, yeah I mean. I, I turned the game on just out of sort of sheer morbid curiosity, um, and I got exactly what we expected. Yeah, I mean, Miami is, is certainly not back. You, you nailed it. Bryce Young, uh, just the next one in a long line of Alabama quarterbacks. And, I mean, he very well could be the best out of all of them. Um, he looked really good. He's definitely the Heisman favorite, I would say, don't you? Definitely after week one. It's kind of weird to have a Heisman favorite after one week because yeah. – anything can happen we're not really going to have a clear picture till probably like week six or the halfway point but definitely the, the leader out of the gate plus the fact that he's Alabama's quarterback premier player gives him an advantage because they're going to be the best team this year and typically the best player in the best team pretty good position to win the Heisman yep the more things change the more they stay the same well let's look at sort of the other I guess this would be the biggest game of the week you would think except for the way it ended Georgia Clemson uh just a complete dogfight. Georgia outlasted them 10 to 3 um, look, I mean, Georgia looked dominant. It's kind of what we talked about the SEC. I mean, they are seven, eight deep on the defensive line with four or five star guys, difference makers. Uh, 
I guess from that standpoint, I mean, is this, you know, Georgia shot up to number two in the rankings this week. Is this more of sort of a, a showing out, coming out party for JT Daniels and Georgia, or is Clemson maybe just not the team that we're expect, we'd be expected to see over the last four or five years? Well, I mean, we talked about last week how this, this year feels different for Clemson because it's such a major year of transformation and shift. I mean, we, we know they have the players, the talent that they've always had, but they're all coming together, stepping onto the field together for the first time this season. And so I think we said, yeah, there's, there's going to be a room for a letdown. And then the other, thing, the, other th- the other thing, too, is it's not like Georgia's offense was good. You know, their touchdown was a pick six. So you yeah. could even make the argument Clemson's defense was just as good but couldn't make, you know, the game-changing turnover. Or Georgia may have a great defense, but their offense might not be good enough to compete. We just talked about how good Alabama is. If Bryce Young is the Heisman favorite and then the Georgia offense can only muster up to like 17 points, that's not going to do you any good. So I think – it's definitely something to be excited about if you're if you're a bulldog fan after the week one. But like again, it's week one. Be excited, but let's let's not really write any major predictions till we till we see other competition. You play other teams and you know the the other top echelon teams in the country. Yeah, absolutely. I think also this game especially was kind of a microcosm of something I heard over the weekend. It might have been our boy Herb Street. I love to borrow from him, but. You know, uh, the defenses looked really good kind of across the board. There were some lower scores there this this year. And I mean, I think it's a huge testament to right last year. There was no no fall camp there. Were, the guys weren't getting together this year. They had full full fall camp guys getting together, putting it, installing those packages. I mean, I think especially in college, right, you can have all the all the talent in the world on defense. But if your guys aren't don't have sort of a cohesion and camaraderie and picking other guys up, I think that's a huge, huge sort of hole that you got. It, you know, I mean, you could have bunch of five stars all over the defense but if you got three guys covering the same guy and somebody gets over the top on you then you know you're screwed that's not going to do anything so I think that's one thing that may be the theme here early on in the season is the defenses have really kind of caught up and leveled the playing field with the offenses which you know I think this was kind of a microcosm of that game but you know if we're looking at the actual best game of the week it was it, it was the opposite of that it was Notre Dame over Florida State 41-38 Notre Dame had that game in hand pretty much the entire game Jack Cohn Wisconsin transfer I've never seen him do anything like he did in that game at Wisconsin so thanks for saving your best for last Jack but uh, you know give Florida State credit they came back they fought uh, Mackenzie freaking Milton guy who we didn't even know if he was going to walk again a couple of years ago, thought he might lose his leg. He was out there just slinging it. I mean, I cannot imagine Andrew, what kind of story it would be if he led that team back, if he led the Seminoles back to win that game. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you could argue is if they'd put him in a little bit earlier, they <laughs> might have won. It. Also, also how nuts is, I, I don't feel like Travis was that bad. He literally came out of the game because his helmet was taken off and he's never went back in. Imagine if that's how his Florida state career ends this season. Is he, Lost his helmet on a play that was outside of his control. But yeah, you talk about the story. They could not emphasize it enough on the broadcast how remarkable the odds were that he would even walk again, let alone play Division I college football against Notre Dame. So it's it really is insane. I mean, they had the cutaways to his mom crying. It was just, it's it's really something like the cliche is used all the time. Oh, there could be a movie about this. There really could be a movie about this. And, you know, it was definitely a great story. And such a bummer it came down to the kicker missing the the field goal in overtime because I think if Florida State got the ball one more time I think they win because Notre Dame only won because they had to kick a short field goal so you know and then obviously the other storyline Brian Kelly apparently wants to mass murder his whole team (laughs) which isn't great but I understand it the other takeaway I had was how bad is it that this was the ACC's best showing of the weekend and they didn't even win the game yeah yeah not not good uh I mean 
Look, that, going back to a couple of your points, that's the beauty of college football is, is the kickers. I mean, that, that was kind of the story all over the place. They cost a few few folks uh, a few hundred or thousand dollars uh, on missing some of the overs. That's the beauty of the college game is the, the kickers. You have no idea what you're going to get. And I also, I thought the exact same thing about Jordan Travis, right? I mean, starting that game, kind of coming back, the story about him, he basically had the Chuck Knobloch yips last year. I mean, he got inside his head. He couldn't even throw a five-yard crossing route. And here he is starting week one on ESPN or ABC, whatever, against Notre Dame. This sort of big coming out party, like you said, he played okay. And then next thing you know, he gets his helmet knocked off, goes out of the game, and Kenzie Milton basically steals the job from him. So such is the life of a QB1 with a guy, you know, who's behind you who can play. But um, I think overall it was it was a great, great game, great storyline. I'm not going to touch on the Brian Kelly trying to execute his players because I don't know what was going on there. That's just, uh, that's deep, dark territory. But let's look ahead to week two. And actually, really quickly, I also want to note, give a huge shout out to the FCS teams this week. Montana had probably the biggest win, 13-7 over Washington. They had six wins for the FCS teams over the FBS. That's most ever for week one. So, hey, a nice little shout out for the little guys. I mean, there were even a few, your, your pick, Andrew, to maybe sneak into the playoffs, Iowa State almost coughed it up and they, they barely eked it out 1610 to North, Northern Iowa. So, uh, you know, nice little shout out for the FCS teams, but Andrew, let's look ahead to the two sort of big games for week two, not nearly as many big matchups on paper as we saw in week one, but Oregon at Ohio state. And you mentioned, you know, Florida state kind of having the best showing of any ACC team this week, a conference that absolutely needs to have some great show. They need to have a team just go 13 and 0. The same is true for the Pac-12. Oregon was supposed to be that team. I mean, they recruited, they recruit so well. I mean, they're bringing guys from all over the place. A lot of talent there. They were supposed to walk through the Pac-12, and then they barely get over a really tough Fresno State team, 31-24. Now they're going into the shoe, a 13 and a half point dog. I mean, do they have any chance in this game? Uh, probably not, um, especially with with Thibodeau, who's projected to be like arguably the best player in. Yeah, he's out. Yeah, he's out, and that's a guy that you would desperately need because he's a you know gets after the quarterback, could create some turnovers by himself, and really change the, the momentum of that game. It's at the horseshoe. Um, yeah, I, I think on paper you go, yeah, Oregon doesn't have a chance. But I will say what I'm intrigued by the, by this weekend specifically is is after UCLA really kind of handled LSU, and if Oregon can put up a really good fight or win the game at Ohio State, and then the other game that's really I'm kind of noticing is Colorado is hosting Texas A&M in Denver. I think yep. you kind of have an opportunity where the Pac-12 could make a statement. And I, I don't anticipate Colorado beating A&M, but if they can at least make it a game, make it clear like the Pac-12 teams this year are ready to compete against the perceived up, you know, uh, kind of top teams in the country, I think you could get ahead of the narrative the Pac-12 is a lesser conference this year. So it's a big weekend for them. And I think if they kind of fall flat on their face like the ACC did last weekend, then we're going to keep hearing the same thing that the Pac-12 is just the lesser conference and, you know, they're going to have to really do everything in their power to have a team in the college football playoff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hey, you, you hit it. The the visor tour, Chip Kelly at UCLA, that was a nice win against LSU, who I really don't think is that good. I was actually texting our executive producer, Seamus, over the weekend, and I th- there was a stat that came up that basically said, I think in four different categories, LSU had the worst defense in school history last year. It was points per game, passing yards per game, total yards per game, maybe one more. Uh, they certainly don't look like they're back this year. So I don't know how big of a win that was for UCLA. Certainly the Hawaii win, I don't know. Um, but yeah, I mean, UCLA might be the one to interesting, interestingly carry the torch for the Pac-12, maybe. Uh, they've got Oregon at home October 23rd, which could be fun. I would also maybe look, you mentioned Colorado. I think Utah is kind of a pesky one. Um, um, 
you know, I mean, they're just that team who they never really kind of show out or are very fancy, but they hit you in the mouth. They've got a transfer Charlie Brewer, a quarterback from, from Baylor who can really sling it. So that's kind of an interesting team, I think, to watch out for too. But basically, we're just reaching here to find a Pac-12 storyline to give them some clout. Uh, let's look at the other big game. It's the Cy probably the biggest Cyhawk trophy game in history. Top 10 matchup in Ames, Iowa, number 10, Iowa at number nine, Ohio, St Iowa State, excuse me. We just mentioned Iowa State barely pulled it off against UNI, which was not a great start. Iowa, on the other hand, looked fantastic. I mean, we thought maybe it, we gave Indiana some dap last week, thinking maybe they were going to be pretty good. They also have the greatest quarterback name in, in history, Michael Penix Jr. Uh, but Iowa smoked them. They just bloodied them. Two pick sixes by the same guy. It wasn't even a close game from really the word go. So um, what's your takeaway from this matchup? Well, yeah, obviously whoever wins is going to be in a great position to kind of hold their own going into their conference schedule because they're going to have a huge top 10 win on theirs, especially a rivalry game. There's you know, more passion than normal in it. Um, what I, I think is interesting, you know, you talk about how good Iowa looks. If they win this game, I think we're looking at a potential situation where Iowa, bit, you know, Ohio State in the Big Ten Championship could be a de facto college football playoff game. And because it, it's interesting, most years, the best teams in the Big Ten are in the same division. It's Ohio State, it's Penn State. You know, a couple years ago, it was Michigan, Michigan State. And then it was one of those where they're not even playing each other in the Big Ten Championship because they're in the same division. Whereas this year, if Iowa is clearly, hey, we're the Western Division team, Ohio State's Eastern Division team, we could see like a top five matchup in the Big Ten Championship. Now, I know we're looking way down the line, but I'm just saying that potential is there that I think Iowa, you know, with a win over Indiana and Iowa State to start the season, would be huge for kind of setting up the narrative that they're a team to beat this year. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I, I like the Iowa team. Again, that's another team that's just, you know, constantly eight and four, nine and three. They're always kind of there, but they're never really challenging. I mean, I'm looking at the schedule right now. They're avoiding, they avoid Ohio State until that potential uh, Big Ten championship game. They really don't have any tough games. I mean, they've got Penn State at home. Maybe their toughest game is at Wisconsin. Uh, and with the way Graham Mertz played last week, I wouldn't be worried about that one bit. And then next week they're at Northwestern. But other than that, I mean, that's a schedule that I think the implications of this game, if Iowa wins, that's much more, um, you know, that's heavy leaning towards potentially maybe disrupting the playoffs. I think Iowa State, we touched on it last week. I don't want to belabor the point, but their schedule is just not good enough. And the Big 12 just kind of reeling from the loss of Oklahoma and, and Texas, I, I think, that, that's a bigger game for Iowa if they win than it is for Iowa State. But let's, uh, let's move on into our interview with 2008 Masters champion Trevor Immelman, and then we'll come back with some uh, NFL preview. We'll be right back. All right, our guest today is an international golf legend. He needs little introduction. He's an electric on-air golf analyst. He's covered the sport for CBS, NBC Golf, the Golf Channel, and TNT anything that covers golf, you name it. He's the captain for the international team in the 2022 President's Cup and one of the select few in the world to own a green jacket. It is 2008 Masters champion Trevor Immelman. Trevor, how are you? Hey, guys. Uh, I'm doing great, thanks. That's a pretty cool introduction there. Thanks a lot for that. I should, I should take you guys wherever I go. That, that's about the best I've ever heard. Thanks hey, a lot. We'll be your hype man anytime, Trevor. And I mean, there's nothing in there that's fluff. You earned it all. Well, listen, let's, let's dive into... Just, you know, what, what kind of transpired this weekend, right? I mean, we're talking all things golf today, but the current state of golf, certainly a lazy weekend here in the U.S., a, a long three-day weekend, but it was action-packed there at East Lake Golf Club. Patrick Cantlay held off John Ram. He won that 15 mil in the FedEx Cup by just a stroke. What do you make of – so two questions for you, Trevor, for this weekend. What do you make of the finish, which was electric, and mm. with Patrick Cantlay specifically, 
What's your take on sort of his meteoric rise over the last few weeks? I mean, the guy was clearly a good golfer at UCLA. He had that that horrific back injury, spinal injury, but now he's, I mean, he's taken home the, the he's at the top of the PGA Tour leaderboard. Yeah, it, uh, it was an awesome weekend of golf between the FedEx Cup and the Salon Cup. Uh, amazing finish, as you said, with those two guys going to head. Look, John, uh, head to head, John Rahm has been the best player in the world, in my opinion, by far, for the for the majority of the season. He really has kind of put a stake in the ground there in that number one position and told these guys, look, you're really going to have to kick it up a notch if you want to hang with me. He's not winning every time he goes out, but every time he plays, with nine holes to go, he's got a shot to win the tournament. And sooner or later, those are going to start falling in his lap as he's there more and more and more. And when he starts racking up uh, a lot of wins then with that, all the extra confidence and the intimidation factor with the other players starts to kick into gear. So I've been mega impressed by his play over the course of the season. And he's had a lot of weird things happen to him with getting COVID twice and, you know, actually giving up a victory at the Memorial when he was leading by miles and then couldn't play on Sunday. So there's been a lot of weird stuff going on with him, but he has still found a way, in my opinion, to keep himself a full body length ahead, so to speak, than every other player out there. Um, Cantlay, yeah, last two weeks really have, uh, I think, improved people's perception of him in many ways. The way he plays, look, people who've followed golf and know golf have seen his potential for a long time. You touched on his record at UCLA. The kid was, he's been a stud at every level. And he's also had some adversity to overcome with some back issues and having to take some time out. Um, a lot of personal stuff with his best friend um, passing away at a young age. And he's fought through all of that. And then in the last uh, couple seasons, has really started to find his position in the top 10 in the world. And then in the last two weeks, he's, he's shown um, that at the highest level under the most pressure but also I feel like, which is equally important, is the way that he's conducted himself uh, on the golf course and also in the interviews. Some of the sound that he has given uh, pre and post, and particularly after the win at the BMW, I think has been awesome. And people have kind of, he's kind of stoic on the golf course, but for the first time, really, people were able to get a little bit of a look behind the curtain and understand some of his personality and understand what makes him tick and how he thinks about certain things. And that's really cool. It's always great when fans have something like that to, to grab onto, to make you want to root for somebody. And um, so, yeah, I think it was great. Um, the two, these two guys going head to head and what a finish there. You've got 15, that brutal little par three with the Island green. Yeah, that was nasty the hole. And they, but I mean, how good are those two up and downs for those guys? They, look, they got 15 million bucks on the line. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the two up and down, 16 Cantlay stuffs it in there, makes birdie. Uh, and then he has the little hiccup on 17 and Rom hangs in there. And then those shots that they hit, the, the tee shot um, at the last hole, you know, just for anybody that hasn't been there, you hit over a hill. So you, you, the landing area is actually blind. You, you have to sort of visualize where you think it is and try and match the shape to that. It's a dog leg left. And both these guys hit it down the fairway and then striped these long irons in there. And it wasn't over until Rahm's chip shot just skirted by the edge. So awesome finish. Um, 
we, was really happy with Cantlay. And then from an international perspective, uh, you know, eight, eight, eight of our guys qualified for uh, the Tour Championships. So, so that's something we're really proud of. That's huge. And I actually want to touch on that. You, you, we, had a, we had a question here sort of down the board, but you hit on it right, right there. Those, those big shots on 18, not only the tee shots, but the second shots from both guys. I mean, Ron right there, he just missed the, hitting the pin. Uh, can't lay right, just put it right on the front of the green, rolled it right up. I'm just wondering, as I got, I mean, like you, right? So I'm an amateur golfer. I can get out there. I can swing it pretty good. I can have some good shots. But as soon as my buddy puts $20 on the line or something, I got all these thoughts going through my head, my backswing, everything is just off. I mean, with that much money on the line, $15 million, yes, these guys are pros, but I mean, how much pressure in that moment and how big a shot is that? I mean, what's going through your mind in a moment like that? I mean, you know, it's, it's just, it's huge pressure. Yeah, it's, t- it's, it's, it's tons. And it's, uh, when you're talking about that amount of money, it's life-changing. And, yeah. and, you know, maybe even life-changing for, you know, a couple generations for your kids' kids. So <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Uh, but... You know, it's one of the things that you have to learn to deal with as you're coming through the ranks uh, and you're, you're in those positions and, and all those thoughts just keep coming at you. Like you said, nobody is immune to it. It happens to everybody. And it's just finding a way what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to. And then at the end of the day, you kind of pass your way through that and you might grab onto something to bring you back into that moment. And just say to yourself, okay, look, I'm in the fairway. I got 211 yards, whatever it is. The lie is perfect. You know, this is a perfect six sign. Just make this swing you've made a million times. Stick to your routine. And you just find a way to bring yourself right back into that moment. And forget about all the noise and and everything that's happening on the outside. Um, And, you know, you've also just got to... You've got to be real with yourself and, and, and allow yourself to understand that you may fail as well. And I think it's, as soon as you learn to deal with that and you realize that even if you do fail, if you've done everything that you wanted to do leading up to the moment, but you don't execute that way, that's fine too. You know, life's still going to carry on for you and you're going to move forward. Uh, the better you learn to come to grips with that, I think the freer you then can play in that moment and you can just really let it go and play to your full potential. And for me, that's what the greatest have, have, have always done. They, they just have that intangible to where they're not tied up in knots when that moment really comes. Just keep it yeah. simple. Mm. For sure. Now, I, I want to backtrack a second, just kind of going back to what you were talking about with John Rahm and how dominant he's been. One of the things that was actually notable about this weekend was even though Cantley took home the tour championship, Rom actually beat him by three strokes this week. Mm. And so it's kind of come, you know, called into question, like how, what are kind of the pros and cons of the FedEx scoring format and kind of how it comes into play in determining the champion? Cause even Cantley himself this week said it was not a good format in determining the champion. So I wonder what are your thoughts on like how they kind of stagger the scoring going into the last tournament based off of point standing. And if that is like as a professional golfer yourself, if that's really the best way to score a champion for the PGA Tour. Yeah, it's, it's, it sure is tricky, and a lot of people have been debating it. Uh, the times I played the Tour Championship, um, first time, the playoffs weren't even in existence. <laughs> so we didn't have this kind of thing. It was just the Tour Championship. 
and the top 30, and it was an event on its own. This, uh, the next time I, I played it, uh, the FedEx Cup playoffs had come into being. And actually, Vijay Singh had such a large lead that he could finish dead last and still won the FedEx Cup. So he actually only just had to tee off on the first hole and he was the FedEx Cup champion. And so clearly, <laughs> that formula wasn't right either. And so as they've learned and tried to tweak these little things at first with the points and trying to keep track of it, uh, everyone thought that that was too difficult for our fans to really follow um, coming down the stretch. And so then the staggered scoring system came into being. And, you know, a lot of people don't love that either because it's not traditional stroke play golf. But it sure is a lot easier for us to follow. I mean, it's a little weird seeing a guy start mm -hmm. the tournament at 10 under when he hasn't hit a shot. But on Sunday, when we came down the back nine, the scoring was right in front of us all. We knew, okay, Rom's got a, uh, Rom's one behind, Rom's two behind. You know, Thomas is, if Thomas Birdie's the last, he can get into third on his own. So everybody knew there was no real guessing or, um, you know, having to go onto some kind of website to see the projected points. And so I am in favor of that. Uh, one of the things that I just thought about was just chatting through it with my son, who's a golf fan, is I, I, I kind of wondered, you know, I think a lot of American fans, when they see the word playoffs, mm -hmm. you know, you naturally think to other sports and you think of like more team on team um, and knockout, like knockout. You win a playoff. Okay. The other team, sorry, I didn't, you know, it's like the Patriots way back. I don't care that you were undefeated in the regular season, but, you know, you don't win the Super Bowl. Sorry, mm -hmm. you lost. You lost in the final to the Giants. And so um, w when Americans see the word playoffs, they immediately think to that knockout. Maybe the word playoffs shouldn't have been used in the marketing. Who knows? But one of the things that, that I've been uh, kind of throwing around a little bit is if you've got these three weeks, uh, so our three playoff events, I wonder what would happen if you had continual scoring. So you play the four rounds in the first week. You then carry that score to the next week and you keep going. And then you get to the third week. So now guys have been playing uh, for, for two tournaments before they get to Eastlake. And so now, you know, how they've played in the first two weeks um, really does matter for how they set themselves up for that final week. And so that's something I thought of um, just kind of, you know, kicking it around with my son, trying to wonder if there's another way to do it. But um, at the end of the day, you know, these guys knew the rules at the start of the season and they all played their guts out. And I think we got uh, got a worthy winner. Yeah, I love that idea. It's almost like uh, international or club soccer, you know, the aggregate scoring, home and home or that that kind of thing. I mean, sure. I love it. Let's submit it to the PGA Tour. We'll, we'll co-sign that uh, yeah. all day, Trevor. I love that there idea. <laughs> well, look, regardless of how you feel about the FedEx Cup scoring, I think we can all agree that the last three weeks have been pretty electric. It's been an awesome finish. Certainly Bryson DeChambeau, that, that six-hole playoff, the dramatic finish at the BMW Championship. But I think 
you know, sort of regard, and you could call maybe what we had with Rom and Cantlay this weekend, maybe a, a midi, mini burgeoning rivalry, if you will. But I think the biggest, one of the biggest stories of 2021 has been that true rivalry between Brooks Kepka, Bryson DeChambeau. You know, it's been some bad blood. They said they were going to put it aside here for the upcoming Ryder Cup. We'll see if that happens. But I'm curious, you know, if I'm looking back as, as a golf fan myself, I mean, the only rivalry, quote unquote, that I can kind of think of was, was maybe, you know, Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods. Uh, this feels a lot different, certainly, uh, but I'm just curious from your standpoint, do you think this kind of rivalry is good for the sport? I do. I really do. I think it's, uh, you know, every now and then it gets a little immature and a little silly. A little cheeky, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. but still, I mean, you know, that's the beauty of sports. It's, 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 it's ever since you've grown up, whatever sport you've been in, you've had teams and players that you love and that you always root for and you sit down on the weekends and you, you know, you carve out time to be able to watch them compete. You know, last night I was sitting in front of the TV watching Djokovic. I'm not a huge Djokovic fan per se. I was always a Federer guy, but you've got to respect just how freaking good this guy is and what he's playing for trying to win all four majors in one season. And then, you know, sneak past the other two with 21 majors in his career. So, you know, just the respect standpoint, I wanted to sit down and watch him last night. I think those rivalries are great and it's, it's something that we need to learn to deal with. And as we've started to really increase the social media interaction and bringing betting to the sport, this is the kind of thing that is just, it's just a, a natural evolution of that process. So uh, it's, it, it's definitely something that this generation of players are going to have to get used to totally different to when I played uh, you know, I turned pro in 99 and, and um, competed at, at the highest level from, let's call it like 04 to about 2010. We didn't have to deal with this kind of stuff. You know, when I was playing with Tiger or going head to head a couple of times with Tiger, you hear stuff in the crowd, but it, it didn't seem like it was as much as what it is now with this, this Bryson thing that's going on. So um, I think that's just one of the things that this generation of players are going to have to deal with. And uh, fans are going to pick their side and decide who they want to root for. Uh, I'm, I'm huge fans of both of those guys. I know them well and I'm friends with both of them. Uh, I have a ton of respect for, for what they've done. You know, Brooks rattled off four major wins in a real short space of time that has put him into a level of, you know, 100% Hall of Fame golfer winning multiple majors like that is extremely difficult and impressive. Um, you know, in the last couple seasons, though, and I love the guy. I'll, I would tell, I'll tell this to his face. You know, he's had, he's had a lot of talk, but he's been injured a lot. And so it's hard to really come with all the talk when you've been injured a lot. I mean, this week he couldn't even finish. He hit the root, which is extremely unfortunate and unlucky. Uh, but now, you know, now he's, now he's hurt the wrist as well. He's had issues with both knees. And so, you know, he should get out there and make sure that he can play a full season healthy. Um, and Bryson, on the other hand, he's been playing a lot, playing great, spoken a lot about the changes he's made to his body and how far he's hitting it. We've all seen that. That's been, uh, you know, really the talk of the town for the last year or so. Um, but at times, you know, maybe done some things that have rubbed fans up the wrong way. So I think from both of their standpoints, they've done stuff that um, 
they it's probably set them up in a position to where you can see why people get annoyed with them and it's just the way it is you know you've just got to kind of live live with that with the ups and downs of that um but i think at any time that golf is on the front page of news stories it's got to be a good thing i mean these guys aren't out there punching each other and you know <laughs> saying ridiculously rude things to each other at the end of the day they're still in my opinion competing very very clean and so yeah. i'm i'm in favor of that and uh, i'm in favor of our sport being on the front page of newspapers and magazines and and headlines uh, all over social media anything that garners interest for the sport that's what it's all about absolutely yeah. for sure and you know right there you actually kind of like took the question right out of our mouths we were going to ask you about the difference between kind of this generation of golfers and what it was like to come up during the tiger woods mania which mm. kind of leads me into my you know obviously the question regarding the, the thing you're most well known for, which is that 08 Masters, because you not only beat Tiger Woods, you beat him by three strokes right at the peak of kind of the Tiger mania. So obviously it's a huge accomplishment to win the Masters. Obviously it's the preeminent golf tournament in the world, but what was it? Was it extra special to win it kind of knowing you're beating Tiger Woods at his most dominant? Yeah, there's, there's no doubt about that, but particularly now, the more distance you put between that moment you know we're at uh, 12 13 years now you you start to look back at it uh, when you can see the body of his work uh, throughout his professional career and how many wins he's had how many major wins he's had how long he was world number one for it absolutely adds a little luster to the fact that you know he finished second at the one major that i, I managed to win uh, and so that's something that you look back on really fondly now uh, but yeah, as it goes to competing against him and with him, it was an incredible experience because, uh, you know, I dedicated my life to the sport. I started when I was five years old and it consumed me. And so I sacrificed, and when I say sacrifice, I mean, you know, don't take that the wrong way, but I, I, I didn't have much of a, of a, of a, you know, teenage life because i was always practicing and it was my choice because that's what i wanted i wanted to play golf on the pga tour i wanted to try and become the best player in the world i wanted to win major championships and so it's all i focused on as a kid and i won a lot i won a lot in south africa junior golfs and i started coming over here and winning junior tournaments and so was always um on the right track to get to that point and by the way, it's not just me. There's tons of other guys that have done the same from all over the world. Other Americans, Phil, Phil Mickelson's, Ernie Elses, BJ Singh, Adam Scott. You go down the list, there's tons of them, okay, that lived that same kind of junior life, dedicated themselves to try and be as good as they can be. And, and they were winners and they won often and you get used to that. And then all of a sudden, this guy appears and you cannot beat him, Okay. <laughs> He just destroys you pretty much every single time. And so mentally, it is so difficult to deal with knowing that, I mean, if he plays his best, you've got no chance. And the only chance you have is if he's slightly off and then you play your absolutely best and you probably get a little luck as well. I mean, those were the times when people would beat him. When you look back at the runs that he would go on, it's ridiculous. I, I don't think people have enough respect and admiration for what that guy did in 
you know, he's, he's had a couple different phases to his career, but from, you know, 97 to 2000 is one when he, when he, you know, or 97 to 99, where he won a major or two and, you know, won every now and then. He obviously won that Masters at 21 years old or whatever he was. But from 2000 to like 2008 was ridiculous. And then he's had some injuries and, you know, 2013, he won five times on tour and was player of the year. And then 2019, he wins the Masters again, which is ridiculous um, after everything he went through. But the clip that that guy used to win at and the fact that, you know, he knew he was the best. He knew that we couldn't beat him. We knew that we couldn't beat him. It was a really weird time to be uh, a, a pro athlete. Because when you consider the PGA Tour, you know, you're like, you're the top 1% of the 1%. And so all of these guys that play on the tour, they're great and they're winners and they've won a ton since they were kids. And all of a sudden you have like players that I mentioned that just, just couldn't get it by the guy. It was uh, an unbelievable time to be a pro athlete. Also, cause you know, all of us rode his coattails, the amount of sponsorship money and interest he brought to the sport really uh, put all of us in a position to where we could make a great living. And so I'm thankful for him for that. Uh, but yeah, totally different to now where shucks, you know, you've got 10, 15, 20 guys that could win any week, any major. That just was not the case there for about a decade in time because of him. Yeah, it's certainly not the, the Tiger Woods era. But look, we could talk about your accomplishments all day. I mean, you've, you've seen it all. You've done it all. You're, you're a golf lifer. But I want to talk about something a little bit new for you. So coming up, you're going to be the captain of the international squad of the 2022 President's Cup. Obviously, you have, you have some experience there. You were on the inter international team 2003 and 2005. Captain's assistant under fellow South African legend Ernie Els in 2019. But now you're at the helm. And let's not pull any punches now. I mean, going back to 1994, the international team's only won once. You guys have tied once, and then it's been kind of all U.S.-based. So I'm just curious from, from your standpoint, you know, what do you kind of expect here is your biggest challenge? Who do you kind of see as maybe the, the sort of key cog in your team and, you know, maybe somebody on the U.S. side who, who might need to kind of falter to let you guys maybe take home that cup? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've got our asses kicked. It's just plain <laughs> and simple, and we understand that. We don't run from that. You know, we, we, we own those results um and uh but we would love to change it and so starting with the last president's cup we really did overhaul the whole process uh, ernie did an amazing job um trying to f build a platform for us from which we could build from and we did that and we came really close down there we uh we gave it away on the final day a little bit uh and couldn't quite hang with the american team and it was uh extremely disappointing finish for us because uh, we were right there we could we could feel it and taste it that victory but uh, got snatched from us at the end uh, by a great American team but we you know we have a lot of hurdles uh, from, from both sides first of all the American team is extremely strong I mean on paper you would kind of wonder how anyone would be able to compete against them uh, but the European team finds a way to do it very well every couple of years. And so really there's no excuse why we can't find a way. We just need to, to find a, a blueprint that we believe in. Um, and, you know, then from, from our own team standpoint, uh, the hurdles we need to overcome are, you know, shucks, we can have seven, eight, nine different regions that 
you know, make up our team. And we have a ton of cultural differences, language differences. And so we need to make sure we do a great job there, uh, filling the gaps in those areas so that we have the right team chemistry, right team camaraderie, and that everybody can work as one unit. Because that's really what you need. There's just no way to beat an American team that is so strong unless you go out there and it's like you really got to be tough together. And um, so we look forward to the challenge. It's going to be even more difficult seeing as though we are uh, competing here in the States in Charlotte, uh, which is an awesome uh, sporting city. So the fans will be out and loud and rowdy, uh, which will be exciting as well. Uh, so, yeah, we'll just have to see what happens. A lot of work between now and then. A huge mountain to climb. But, uh, you know, you got to go play and see what happens. Let the chips fall there, where they may. Can't win if you don't yeah. play. Yeah, it's going to be rowdy. It's going to be electric. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it, Trevor. But listen, man, we could go all day with you. This has been an absolute blast. We are out of time. But I just want to thank you for joining us. The 2008 Masters champ, big Federer guy, and now a walk-ons legend, Trevor Immelman. Trevor, thank you so much. Thanks, guys. I had a blast. Thanks so much for having me on. We appreciate it. Best of luck at the upcoming President's Cup, my man. Cheers. Thanks. All right. Our thanks to Trevor Immelman, 2008 Masters champion. That was a spectacular interview. Once again, make sure to follow him on Instagram and Twitter. It's the same handle, at Trevor Immelman. It's, he's got great content out there. He won't, won't be disappointed. Andrew, uh, I, I mean, we kind of teased this at the beginning of the show. I had a feeling Immelman was going to be awesome, but he was far beyond expectations. He was spectacular. Yeah, he was fantastic. And we, we meant to ask him about it, but we just ran out of time, which is his broadcasting stuff right now. He's working on golf, CBS, TNT. I mean, you can tell he's, he's really good in front of a camera with a microphone. And he knows exactly what he's talking about. He's, he's awesome. And uh, yeah, definitely make sure to you know stay in touch with him. That President's Cup at Quill Hall is going to be awesome. I know it's a year away, but still, it can never be too early to tease Mark it. calendars. Yeah. No, he was, he, yeah, he was fantastic. I mean, he, that's one of the kind of interviews where it's like, I wish we had more than an hour because I didn't want to shuffle him off. I felt like my man had, had another half hour in him, but that's neither here nor there. Definitely check out the interview. Um, it was one of our best so far. So thanks to, our, thanks to Trevor Immelman again. Uh, make me, don't ever make me say his name again because I just cannot get it out of my mouth. But Andrew, let's talk NFL. Uh, we've got week one on hand. Most of you by now, you've got your fantasy drafts. You've been pouring over all the stat sheets. Um, you're probably looking at your fantasy team every hour on the hour just to remember who you've got, see, see what kind of matchups you've got. But week one, we're kicking off with, of course, the defending champs, Tom Brady, Tampa Bay taking on Dallas. I see here on the show sheet, is this the worst opening game matchup you can remember? Uh, the answer is no for me. I don't know about you, Andrew, because you might have been the one to write that. But uh, look, it's do I want to see Tampa Dallas? Not really. I mean, Tampa. Yeah. That's probably one of the biggest draws with Tom Brady, Dallas, of course, America's team, despite the fact that they are garbage, people still love them. People will still watch. This is going to be a huge draw for the audience, but no, it's not the worst matchup I can remember. I think it'll be interesting. I also think Dallas, uh, just again, that they're going to be an interesting team that, you know, they've got all those pieces back on offense, but uh, I, I don't see any way where Tampa do doesn't win this game. No, and actually, I, I after writing that down, I remembered last year it was the Kansas City Chiefs versus the Houston Tyrod Taylors. So Yikes. That was already worse than this year. Um, so, But still, point being, uh, with, with Dak literally not playing at all in the preseason, I'm a little concerned that this might have blowout potential. 
Um, but again, I, I get why the league chose them, even though there's better matchups they could have chosen. I mean, how great would a Tampa Bay Buffalo Bills season opener have been, or even the Saints? You know, get your first crack with Jameis. But I get it. The Cowboys are still the Cowboys. People tune in for better or worse. Um, and yeah, I think we're just excited to have football back. So let's see how good the Tampa Bay team is. Yeah, I just want football back. And uh, just to clean up something right there, too, I'd I love your respect for Tyrod Taylor, but he was in L.A. with the Chargers last year. It was actually I understand John Watson, that. so I, that's I, not a terrible game either. Uh, no, but they went they went 4-12 and 12 last year. They were terrible. Granted, we didn't know that at the time, but, you yeah, know. We, we didn't, didn't, we didn't know Deshaun was getting massages before and after each game. So, you know, that's, that, that's something that we know now. But, look, I, I think it's going to be an interesting game. You mentioned, right? I mean, I would love to see, maybe it, rather see Tampa, New Orleans, but I, I don't like kicking it off with a divisional game. I like that sort of more in the middle of the season. Tampa Bay, Buffalo would be interesting. I kind of almost feel like this is not a middle finger from the NFL to Dallas, but more like, yeah, we, we are all first game of the year is always featuring the defending champ. You, you want a big draw, but you also don't want to put a team like Buffalo who's got Super Bowl hopes themselves sort of on the road in week one in a big game, sort of, you want to give them a Sunday game. So it's kind of almost like, all right, Dallas, you're the lambs of the slaughter, go get them. Uh, but some other big notable games from this week, we've got Bill Steelers, Titans Cardinals, which I think will be fun. Browns Chiefs to replay the Chad Henney uh, game with, of course, no Chad Henney. It'll be Patrick Mahomes at the helm, of course. Packers Saints and then <laughs> Jags Texans. Um, I don't know why that's in there. Maybe because it might actually be the worst game of the season. Although I don't quite buy it. I'm, I'm curious to see Trevor Lawrence actually, you know, running with the starters and, and playing week one. And we'll see what that's all about. But those are the fighting Tyrod Ty Taylors there, Andrew, for the Texans. But what game out of those are you maybe most excited about seeing? Well, I mean, the easy answer, because it probably will be the best game, is Cleveland, Kansas City. Um, and, you know, I think Cleveland's got a prime opportunity to announce the entire NFL. Like, it's not all talk. We are legit one of the top three or four teams in the league we have to be taken seriously. And, you know, obviously Kansas City can show that, hey, the Super Bowl was a fluke. We still should be the team that everyone's chasing after. Our offensive line's better. Mahomes, you know, has a full year to get healthy. And just, you know, I think it's, it's, it could be a big statement win for either team. And obviously, I think in terms of just the matchup, the two best teams that are playing each other this week has to be that game. But yeah, I think Titans Cardinals could be super fun. It could be, a you know, offensive showdown. And then I think the sneaky game is the Chargers and Washington football team, because I think those are two teams a lot of people think could be a lot better than expected. You know, I, I don't think either is like a guarantee, but those are both teams that I think if you made the argument, hey, these are going to end up being like a top four team in the respective conference. I don't think anyone would be like, you're an idiot or like, you're crazy. So yeah. look, you don't need to twist my arm to, to watch a little Fitz magic. I will always do that. See the beard just coming out with the chin, the single chin strap. I mean, the guy is old school. I absolutely love watching him play. Uh, that for me is maybe the fourth or fifth best game. I, look, I, Browns chiefs is going to be awesome. They're, of course, probably the most hype out of Cleveland in the last 40 years to the Browns. So curious to see what they actually put together on the field and that they can give the chiefs a game. I mean, I think Bill Steelers is going to be a lot of fun. Of course, you know, Bills certainly have a lot of aspirations. Josh Allen coming off that huge season last year. That's going to be a really, really good kind of knock them out old school, you know, 17, 10, 20, 17 type game. And the Steelers, I mean, I'm just really curious to see, you know, you've got Ben Roethlisberger coming off kind of a down year last year, missed some games. Everyone, the, the old adage, always oh, in the best shape of his life. Uh, maybe he's no longer watching porn. I guess he's happily married now. So good on him, but that's, I'm really interested to see which kind of way the Steelers go. And if the bills really are kind of up to billing, especially now that they've kind of got a target on their back. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing is, though, last week we talked about it with both the Saints and the Steelers because the Saints have a good game, too, with the Packers. Mm-hmm. They, they both have the potential to be firmly playoff teams, firmly in the mix for, like, you know, contending for the, the respective conferences. But they could also fall flat on their face. And so that's why I'm a little reluctant to, like, firmly say, hey, I am all in on this Bill Steelers game or Packers-Saints, especially with that game being relocated to Jacksonville. I mean, I just – I hope the Jaguars' effect doesn't rub off on either team. But, you know, I, I think it's one of those where we're also speculating about teams that we haven't seen play yet. So there could be a really good game between two good teams we just don't even know about yet. Yeah, it's all speculation. I mean, that's what it is. That's part of the fun of it, right? You, until they hit the field and go between the white lines, so to speak, nobody has any idea what's going to happen. But I'll tell you one thing, Andrew, I'm not going to miss a minute of anything if I can help it. I'm going to have two TVs going, two laptops going on my phone. I'm going to just play it all. It's going to be great. I can't wait. My wife's going to hate it, but I'm going to love it. Uh, let's do this, Andrew. Look, everybody's going to, every sports outlet and podcast and, sh- and network out there is going to do storylines to look out for. But hey, we are a sports podcast. We do like to lean into this kind of stuff. So let's talk about some storylines to look out for. Let's go individual awards right now. Who's your MVP pick here before we kick off week one? It's It's got to be Mahomes. I know that's like the safe, easy pick. But with that new offensive line revamped, you know, they may have overcorrected. But he was already doing incredible stuff when his offensive line was basically the equivalent of a Pop Warner team. And he now has professionals. So you know, I feel like it's it, you could you could pick Mahomes every single year, and it would still be a good bet because he'll probably win three or four in his career. And so I, I'm going to ride with Mahomes as like the the guy that I'm definitely, you know, firmly believe will be in the MVP race. The dark horse, which at this point is he even a dark horse? I don't even know. It's Stafford, um, you know, because you McVeigh has a competent quarterback now. You know, they they were both like McVeigh, the competent offensive coach, without a competent quarterback. In Detroit, it was the competent quarterback without a competent team. Now you're putting them together. I think really good things are going to happen this year in L.A. And uh, I think they're going to be breaking a lot of records, especially with that 17-game season. So I don't, I don't know if they're going to give all the credit to Stafford, but he's certainly in a, in a position to show out, hey, I've been relegated to Detroit for the last however many years. Here's my time to shine. Yeah, well, Mahomes is certainly the easy button, so way, way to go out on a limb there. But I, I like the dark horse. I, I personally don't buy – this whole Matt Stafford to the Rams thing, making them Super Bowl contenders. Um, I've just watched Matt Stafford way too often in Detroit, just not do anything with guys like Calvin Johnson. Um, so, you know, uh, that's interesting, but I'm not going to go with that. Look, everybody loves Josh Allen. He is kind of having his moment right now. I don't really buy it. He's not sneaking up on anybody this year. So he's going to have a target on his back, just like his team is. Guys are going to be, re- teams are going to be ready for that. And, you know, the NFL defense is with the talent level and the coaching. They always adjust. So I don't see Josh Allen being an MVP. My MVP for my money, because I don't know a single guy who takes sort of a negativity, of, an offseason full of negativity and just plays it into absolute MVP play. It's Aaron Rodgers. And I mean, coming off an MVP season last year where nobody picked him, he was able to, you know, they they maintain, Aaron Jones is still there. Devontae Adams is still there. Robert Tanyan coming off that huge year. What better way for him to give a middle finger to Green Bay on his way out the door, maybe outside of a Super Bowl, is to win a back-to-back MVP and then take his talents to, I don't know, Denver or somewhere else. So I'll take Aaron Rodgers. If I'm looking at a dark horse, Justin Herbert, I mean, the guy can sling it. He's clearly in an offense that, you know, illustrates his talents he promotes that promotes what he does well. And I mean, I think the the Chargers offense could be really something special this year. I mean, I would hope so. I certainly invested heavily in their offense uh, in fantasy. And then I also think I hate saying it, but 
maybe Dak Prescott. Look, I don't trust the, the defense there, so they're going to be in a lot of shootouts. He's got Ezekiel Elliott back, who, again, he's got the Ben Roethlisberger uh, effect. Of, he looks like he's in the best shape of his life. We'll see about that. You know, you've got the weapons like C.D. Lamb um, and Michael Gallup and, of course, Amari Cooper there. I think Dak could set, certainly put up some huge, huge numbers. I don't know if Dallas is going to be good enough to put him in the MVP conversation. He might be good enough to at least get, you know, comeback player of the year. Yeah, no, my, my only argument with Aaron Rodgers is he won it last year, and so I feel like he'd have to be insanely incredible more than we're even used to for them to give him back-to-back. I feel like it's an award you tend to not give guys back-to-back unless you have to. You know what? Aaron Rodgers, you know? I mean, yeah, no, I mean, definitely, like, it's it's not out hurt, unheard of. And my my only argument has nothing to do with football. It's to do with the voters. Um, <laughs> yeah, I agree with Dak Prescott. He might put up the numbers to do it, but are the Cowboys going to be good enough? I don't think so. I like Herbert as an option. And I'm just going to throw this out there. I think Tom Brady is an option just because, you know, clearly he's still – Voters, Andrew, they can't pick Tom Brady. That's too easy. Yeah, but he didn't win back-to-back. I feel like uh, it's one of those, like, you win one and then you, a year or two goes by, and that's why I picked Mahomes. Like, they feel like they've won more, and then every once in a while, like, oh, yeah, I guess we should give them one more unless there's a clear favorite um, that comes out of nowhere. Um, but, yeah, I think – I'm sure someone's going to play really well that we're not even talking about. This will all be for not like six weeks down the line. Of course. That's the whole beauty of predictions is all the talking heads and the quote unquote experts calling all this stuff out. And then yeah, by week six or seven, everybody looks like an idiot, but uh, look, Rogers is going for 5,050 this year. Let's just book that right now. And you can't keep the MVP away from him if he puts up those numbers, but let's look towards the rookies, Andrew, who's your rookie of the year pick. Um, my rookie of the year on the offensive side is going to be Jalen Waddle, just because I think he is going to be the clear number one player on that offense. I think Tua, even though it doesn't sound like the Dolphins are too excited about him, I think he's actually gotten good reviews. And I think a lot of this Deshaun Watson talk is coming from ownership and not actually from the coaches. Plus, he really, I think, would have been the best player in college football last year if he doesn't break his ankle. You know, I think Devontae Smith, who was awesome, benefited from not having him also taking away catches. So I love that option, especially because, like, so much of it, too, is your situation. Um, you know, I feel like it's easy to pick one of the quarterbacks, but they're all going to bad teams with the exception of Mac Jones. And I don't know if he's actually going to put up great numbers, even if I think the Patriots will be a good team in the playoff mix. Like he's not going to be throwing for 5,000 yards. He's not the type of quarterback. He's not Aaron my, no, my, my defensive pick is, is my guy, Patrick Sertan, because he looks like he is a 10 year veteran already. I have never seen anything like it. He looks so good. The only thing holding him back is I think being a cornerback, you tend to not get attention, which is a good thing because it means you're not getting beat. You know, if they're not saying your name a whole lot during a game, it means like you're doing your job. So I think I could see someone like Micah Parsons winning, especially because they're a linebacker making more plays consistently. But he just like he Denver got a lot of flack for not taking a quarterback this year. But I'm like, that's because Sertan is that good. His dad was an all pro. He's getting comparisons to Champ Bailey and Champ Bailey was like, yes. 100%. 100%. He is just like I was when I was coming into the league. So high expectations for Sertan. I like him as a defensive rookie of the year pick. Well, consider me shocked that you went with the Denver Bronco there. But hey, listen, I'll, I'll give you credit. Patrick Sertan is legitimate. Look, for my rookie rookie of the year, I think Trevor Lawrence is certainly the easy button, but the Jags are going to be bad. And I think that, of course, even though it's an individual award, I think that's going to take away from some of the luster of what he's doing. And, you know, he might, he might very well get killed over the course of the season. I don't know. I think for my money, I'll say rookie of the year is going to be Mac Jones. I mean, he's in a great situation. He's the QB one. He's going to be on a good team. 
Um, that's the guy who I'm looking at for the, for the offensive rookie of the year. I would love to look at, you know, Justin Fields or Trey Lance, but they both better get on the field before week four, if they want to have any, any chance of that. And I don't see that happening really either way. Um, if I'm looking at a defensive rookie of the year, yeah, you see Micah Parsons, he's kind of the heavy favorite. He's there everywhere. If I had to pick sort of a, 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 a deep sleeper, if you will, to use a fantasy term, uh, I'm looking at Jalen, I'm looking at another Miami dolphin, Jalen Phillips out of Miami. Um, that was a guy who had, you know, all kinds of, of injuries and off the not necessarily off the field issues but things beyond his control that kind of derailed his career at Miami but the talent is undeniable uh, I think Miami's going to get after the quarterback quite a bit this year so that, I think that would be an interesting guy that I'd be looking at um, we're running out of time here Andrew but let's go we've got two more superlatives for you one of my favorites the worst to first because that's what the NFL is it's full of parody I think we're looking at maybe nine of the last 10 years, maybe even 10 years in a row. At least one team has gone worst to first. So give me your AFC, NFC, worst to first, best bets this year. Well, I was going to say, it took me a long time to mention my Denver Broncos. And I'm going to say, oh, right now, good Lord. Broncos 20 and 0 season starts right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, I really do think I'm not going to pick them to go first because they're in the Chiefs division. But I yeah, think that's yeah. a team that's going to go from being one of the bottom teams of the AFC to at least in the playoff mix. I mean, you hear it all the time. They're a quarterback away. Yes, they're still a quarterback away. But for the first time in a long time, I don't hate the quarterback situation. I don't love it, but I'm not banging my head against the wall. And I have more about Broncos quarterbacks later. But I think for right now, Bridgewater and our easy schedule, that's not being talked about enough. We have the easiest schedule in the league. I like our chances of at least being a nine-win team. So that's why I'm, I'm picking them to have a pretty drastic shift. The NFC, we talked about it last week, and it's also kind of unfair. The 49ers, I mean – there was so much bad luck for them last year. And I think that's just one of the better rosters in the league. They're two years removed from a Super Bowl. They're the clear favorite to be one of the teams that, you know, has a bad record. That's clearly in the, in the Super Bowl contention mix. So, so you like that answer. So. Sure. Yeah. And I, I love that the name of this segment is worst to first and you pick the Broncos who might have nine wins and finish second or third in the AFC West, but Hey, we'll let you have it because yeah, I'm, I'm a, this is a team sport podcasting is a team sport and I'm a team player. So we'll, we'll go with it. Uh, if I'm looking strictly worst to first in the AFC, I don't really think there is a team that will do that, but if I had to pick gun to my head, I'll take the Bengals. I mean, four and 11 last year, the defense is not great, but they short up the offensive line. Joe Burrow's back. A ton of weapons on offense. Yes, they're in the same division as the Steelers, Ravens, and Browns, so I don't really see it. But, I mean, I guess if we're going by your rules, Andrew, maybe they'll get nine wins and finish second and maybe sneak in as a wild card. That's the only one that I can see there. Uh, the NFC, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you picking the Niners. I would love to see that. I just think the NFC West is such a brutal division. I don't know. I was actually keying in on the Eagles uh, just because the NFC East is basically like the, the NFL's version of peewee football. And you mentioned the Broncos have an easiest strength of schedule, uh, Andrew, but it's actually the Eagles. The Eagles have the easiest strength of schedule in the NFL. They play in the NFC East, so that would be my number one pick to go from worst to first. But, hey, there have been multiple teams in, in the same conference that have gone worst to first, so we could go Eagles and Niners. I'd be just fine with that. Uh, Andrew, all right, give me your Super Bowl, maybe Super Bowl one and two uh, options there. Oh, so two options? I don't know. I want, unless you, you are confident here week one before anything ever gets kicked off. you know. No, who, I'll, I'll give you two, and I'll, I'll, I'll try to pick different teams. So I think, obviously – and I'm not, I'm picking the easy answer because I think it's the most likely answer. I think Tampa Bay and Kansas city are still the two best teams in the NFL. And, but I will say, I, I think this year, Kansas city is going to win. I think the offensive line was a huge, huge weakness, obviously. And if Mahomes has time to throw, I don't know what else to say. Like that, that's, just, it's, it's, that's it. 
I mean, that's, that's all you have to say to, to say why the Chiefs are good. Um, I really like the Bills, and I like the Rams as my backup option because I'm all in on the, on the Rams offensive experiment going on with Stafford. I drafted a bunch of Rams players. I've heard nothing but good things. I've also heard Jared Goff has been awful at Lions camp, which maybe <laughs> tells me he really was just so bad that McVay was making nothing you know, or something out of nothing. And so I really am interested to see him with Stafford. And then the Bills just seem like a team that steadily climbed. You know, they started out as like a wild card team to a competitive division winner. And now that they're clearly the second favorite, they may have the MVP on their team. I know everyone's banking on Allen to be just as good as he was last year. But like you said, there is a target on his back. But I don't know. They just seem like the team that's really well-rounded in every aspect. And I think they were obviously in the AFC Championship last year. It bodes well. I don't know. I, I if we're if we're doing the second option, I'm going to go with Bills Rams. Yeah, I mean, well, so I'm not going to deviate too far from that, but I'll give you two options as well. Uh, Chiefs Bucks is the number one. I really think. I mean, everybody wants to see that matchup again. Uh, you mentioned, look, the Patrick Mahomes thing. Certainly, the the offensive line was was the biggest question mark of that game, and I mean, Patrick Mahomes was running for his life. I don't know what we're going to get from the Chiefs because they've got, I think, three starting offensive linemen who are all rookies. Uh, maybe one other guy who is, I guess, a second-year rookie because he held out last year. So that's going to be really interesting to see how they hold up over the course of the season and if they need to dip into the free agent pool or something like that. But, yeah, Chiefs-Bucks would be number one. My number two would be Bills. Yeah, I think Josh Allen – look, I've mentioned – many times a few times already they've got it they're not surprising anyone this year but that defense is legit josh allen is legit and i'll say bill's niners um i think you know the niners it depends on what's going to happen with jimmy garoppolo can he stay healthy there's gonna, uh, shanahan's going to find out ways to get um trey lance on the field but yeah i'll say bill's niners is number two and i'll give you a dark horse too i i think the tennessee titans could really make a run this year I mean, that's a team that's kind of been building. Of course, everybody knows about Derrick Henry. That's a defense that's legit. Uh, their strength of schedule is middle of the road. But look, it, they're playing in the NFC South. I just don't see them getting really beat up in the NFC South. And, you know, sort of the, the out-of-conference out of games or the out-of-division games, um, it's, it kind of lines up well for them. So I think maybe sort of that key for them. Uh, for the I don't know how, how the Julio Jones experiment is going to work, but it's kind of sexy on paper. But they may very well coast to home field in that number one seed, which would be huge in the playoffs. So I'll, I'll highlight the Titans as sort of my dark horse, if you will. But Andrew, let's wrap this thing up with dudes and duds or dudes and Mets of the week. Yeah, no, I hope the Mets of the week sticks because they're going to have one even during the offseason every single week. You oh, can you know it. That. Um, what should I start with, dudes or duds? Give me a dude. All right, my dude, we already talked about him earlier, Mackenzie Milton. I mean, Straight up, the, the odds he had to overcome just to walk again, I know they made a point of this during the broadcast, are absolutely insane. I think they literally were saying it's a medical, mir uh, medical miracle. The doctor was saying, I've never seen anything like this happen before. Just to, Again, this is just for him to walk, let alone play Division One college football. And then he went out there and almost led the, the Seminoles back to, from a come-behind victory against Notre Dame. Like it, it really can't be said enough how impressive it was. And then I want to give a quick shout-out to my guy, Gus Johnson, who week one already had an electric call in the Wisconsin-Penn State game. I know Wisconsin was on the losing end of that, but you have to admit, anytime Gus Johnson is screaming, it's a good thing for all college football fans. So thank you, Gus. We missed you. Welcome back into our, you know, our homes on, on every Saturday. I love it. Homes in our hearts. Yeah, I absolutely love Gus Johnson. You don't need to, to gussy me up there. Gus Johnson is the absolute man. And, and huge shout out to Mackenzie Milton as well for the obvious reasons. But my dude of the week, and he's making he's making a case to just be a mainstay here in this segment, but it's Dion Prime Sanders. Uh, he had an 
awesome, awesome press conference where he basically called for all teams in the SWAC conference and really all HBCUs to put names on the back of the jerseys and offer to pay for it. He, look, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but I absolutely love this quote. He basically he brought a player from his team, from Jackson State, into the press conference room, had him stand up in a jersey, turn around, put his name and had his name on the back of the jersey. And he said, quote, don't you think his mama and them want to see their baby name on the back of the jerseys? That guy worked his butt off. We could at least put the darn name on the back of his jersey. Now, aside from the fact that I love put his darn name on there, um, he's right. Look, that's something that's always kind of been weird for me, right? Like the smaller schools or whatever. And, you know, some some schools like, I don't know, big football guys, I think Vanderbilt did it this year, right? You don't put the guy's name on the back of the jersey until he earns it. But teams like these smaller schools that don't put the name on the back of the jersey, I mean, really, how expensive is it? Deion Sanders said it was like $5. It's awesome. I mean, these guys work their asses off. It's cool to see your name on your back of your jersey. I mean, I remember maybe the first time I was 12 years old in travel baseball, and we got jerseys with our last names on them. I wore that thing around the house for like four days. It's the coolest thing ever. It's awesome for your family. It's awesome for your friends. It's not very hard to do. So right on Dion for, for calling out something that's kind of bugged me for a long time, but it's just, you know, it's one of those stupid things that nobody tends to bring up. But when Dion says something, something's going to change. So you might be seeing, seeing those teams in the SWAC maybe as early as next week with the names on the back of the jerseys. Oh, yeah. All right, Coach Andrew, Sanders, done, man. Done. Um, well, get, get, get it done. Coach Sanders. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so my uh, dud or met of the week, depending on, you know, what you prefer, um, is the Denver Broncos quarterback room from last year, which if you remember correctly, there was a game where they didn't have a quarterback, which it came out this week occurred because there was, so the situation was one of the Broncos backup quarterbacks had COVID. They were all watching film together. And apparently they said that they, took their masses down to eat some food. Therefore, they were all ruled ineligible. There's a bunch of hoopla about why couldn't the game be moved. Well, it came out this week that it wasn't moved because the Broncos lied about what actually happened, or the quarterbacks did. So apparently, they took all their contract tracers off, put them into the four corners of the film room so that it looked like they were social distancing, and then proceeded to watch film like in close proximity when one guy had COVID. So when the Broncos were like, can you please move our game? The NFL was like, hell no. You guys skirted the rules and we caught you red-handed like a bunch of idiots. You're going to have to throw out a practice squad wide receiver this week against the playoff team. And we all saw what happened. It's And honestly, it's, it's, it's really weird. A lot of stuff has come out this week that there's a reason why it seemed Vic Fangio never really considered Drew Locke as his starting quarterback. And I think a lot of it had to do with his immaturity, which we've seen firsthand occurred in this. And also in that quarterback room was Blake Bortles. So, you know, there was some not good influence hey. on – it's just it was it's one of those where no matter if you're a fan like I am or not you're like idiots no yeah. wonder like the NFL did not bow down for, for them like they did any other team that was in that situation last year it's a hilarious story it's like you know the two kids at a sleepover you're gonna you know wait for the parents to go to sleep and then sneak down into the into the cabinet and steal all the candy meanwhile you think you're being quiet and you know all the candy wrappers the parents know what's going on the NFL is probably the the most strict parent of all so that was pretty stupid and not bad for your worst of first team there great great way to start the season uh but my my met of the week it it's hard knocks we mentioned this a little bit last week but Look, I love Hard Knocks. I think everybody loves Hard Knocks. It's such a great way to get ready for the NFL season. You get to watch some of these you mean, great storylines, guys fighting for their jobs. You get to see their families. But basically, this season consisted of not only is it the Cowboys, which I just couldn't care less about, but basically the main storylines uh, were about 20 minutes of a dude trying to get his contact lenses in. 
Jerry Jones basically just crushing a bunch of egg McMuffins and crying in the shower and Ezekiel Elliott cr- uh, giggling like a little girl every other minute. It was bad TV. Uh, this fair w- may very well just ruin the entire franchise of not the Cowboys, although that would be kind of cool, but just the hard knocks. I mean, they better come real, real hard, no pun intended, next year with a riveting storyline and a riveting team because this year was the worst that I can remember. Um, but we are out of time. We are actually up against time, but we're having so much fun. Uh, this is <laughs> this is Ryan Reeves. We are we are almost out. Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. I want to give a shout out to Trevor Immelman once again. Awesome interview. Thanks, Andrew Schuster, my guest co-host as always. And we are out. The Walk-Ons.